we know that the situation on the ground can change very quickly, and that when it when it does, the risks are not theoretical; they're real, uh, right. and you have to be prepared for them. Hello, and welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor in chief of Mediaite. My guest this week is Jim Shudo, a CNN anchor and the network's chief national security correspondent. Jim is currently anchoring his CNN show from Kyiv in Ukraine, where the threat of a Russian invasion remains high. The Biden administration has urged all Americans to leave Ukraine, as Russia has amassed 100,000 troops on its border. Jim has covered foreign conflict for decades as a foreign correspondent, a foreign policy and national security analyst, and a news anchor. He also served as chief of staff and senior advisor to the U.S. ambassador to China during the Obama administration. I called up Jim on Wednesday to discuss the Russia-Ukraine crisis, what life is like on the ground in Kyiv, and what he thinks of criticism of how American media covers foreign conflict. Jim, thanks so much for coming on the show. Great to be on. Thanks for having me. So where are you stationed right now? Right now I'm in Kyiv. I'm in the capital with a number of my colleagues. We CNN has folks around the country as well, in the east, the west, the north, the south, uh, because it's just one of these situations where you don't know if it happens, where it's going to happen first, or if it happens, you know, further Russian military action in a number of places at once. So we, we basically, we, we got all the bases covered. Now, this entire week has been pretty dizzying for those of us trying to follow along what's going on between uh, Ukraine and Russia. Russia says that it's pulling back forces from the border now, but the U.S. says they see no evidence of a drawdown. Could you help us understand what's going on right now? I think big picture, it's important to understand that that part of this war or warfare, you know, particularly if, if a hard war happens, is information warfare, right? And And each side is engaging in it to some degree, you know, from the Russian side, and, and there's a long history of this, basically lying about what its military is up to. Because if you go back to 2014, for instance, when they invaded Crimea, uh, just a reminder, right, that this war has been going on for nearly a decade here. But when they invaded Crimea, they famously sent in Russian forces without any flags or insignia, denied that they were Russian forces. These were the guys known as the Little Green Men uh, for weeks. And then, lo and behold, Crimea becomes Russian territory, right? It's taken over and then formally annexed. So, so part of the the strategy, the plan, is to, to to keep the other guys, and by the way, the Ukrainian population, a bit off off balance. Um, uh, to to build up the forces, not say that you are, to pull some back, or say that you are pulling some back, which the U.S. says they haven't seen any credible information, and then maybe the next day you do the opposite, right? Um, so it's, it's not accidental, right? That kind of, uh, misdirection is part of the plan. And by the way, the U S has been taking part to some degree in that one reason the U S has been so generous, shall we say, in terms of sharing its normally classified intelligence assessments with some members of the media and also in public statements by U S officials is, is that's part of the, the U S response to this basically to, to say, and communicate, hey, Russia, we know what you're up to, right? You say you're doing this. In fact, we just saw your helicopters go into position at this airfield, you know, that kind of thing. Things, things that normally might be held under wraps, the U.S. is putting out to the public sphere, too, because that's all part of this, uh, this information battle. 
I was pretty surprised that now that you mentioned it by uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan's press conference, the, the amount of transparency and information that he was giving about what was happening. I thought that was um, that that felt unusual to watch. Um, now, does that create a, a reporting problem? The fact that a lot of the information you're getting, it's incredibly hard to tell whether or not it's true, um, whether or not you know yeah. what Russia is saying, what the United States is saying is is what actually is going to happen. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, with any reporting, um, of course, you have to enter as a skeptic, right? Know your source, uh, have confidence or not have confidence in your source, oftentimes based on relationships and whether they've given you reliable information in the past. Uh, but you always enter with a little bit of skepticism and awareness of, of what acts or axes they have to grind, you know, um, what's their track record. And, and that applies both to a Russia, in this case, and to the U.S., then in the midst of that, you know, based on experience, that there are certain things Russia will do or try to do that the U.S. would not, right? I mean, to, to straight up, for instance, lie about its forces being on the ground in Crimea, you know, Russia does things to a degree that even with its checkered history, U.S. military and intelligence agencies, they do not do. So you have to kind of you know, you apply different filters to, to each source to some degree while maintaining a general and healthy level of skepticism um, and then doing your best to match up what you hear from even, say, U.S. officials against what you see on the ground, certainly, um, and what you know about their history and, and their broader intention. So it is, you know, there's because this is an information warfare space, um, you have to be conscious that that everybody's taking part in that to some degree with varying degrees of accuracy and credibility. Um, you just have to be smart, right? And, and kind right. of take your time and look at the big picture. You know, like today, for instance, you know, and yesterday, you had multiple statements from Russian officials saying, oh, we're pulling back from the border. So we've been looking, you know, first of all, we do a couple of things. We ask U.S. military officials and others, are they seeing this? And they've told us privately, and you've seen public statements, no, we're not seeing anything to support that. But we don't just leave it at that. We've been looking, first of all, reporters around the country, and we've also been looking at videos and posts from around the country uh, of these places where Russia's saying the forces are going to say, well, well, do we see those there? Are we actually seeing those trucks and tanks moving? Are those trains that Russia showed... Uh, official handout video of tanks going onto boxcars, right? Are those trains actually moving after that happens? Or was that a Hollywood moment, right? Mm. You have to, you have to just throw all you can at it and, and then acknowledge, we just did a story today. In fact, based on that, I did a story that's going to be on the air in a little bit based on those videos, then acknowledge that we're not going to know for sure for, for several days, whether it's true, right? Here's what we know now. I think we, with each of these, just as a reporter, it's one of those times where you have to be as forward-leaning with what you know for sure and what you don't. Right. And now you're you're in Kyiv right now. What are things like on the ground there? Is there like this general feeling that war is right around the corner? Or is life going on sort of as as usual? Man, I'll tell you, it's, it's such a disconnect, right, from, yeah. um, from what you hear from U.S. and NATO officials. And by the way, Ukrainian officials as well, because while they may not be as forward-leaning as, as their U.S. counterparts, they do talk about you know, a genuine threat from the Russian military. But I've been walking around Kiev as, Kiev as much as I can. Uh, restaurants are open. Streets are busy. Stores are busy. I went, went out Sunday night. And it was a beautiful Sunday, late winter evening. People were out strolling with their families. You know, no, no 
palpable nervousness. And, and when you mm-hmm. ask Ukrainians, which I have, uh, and I said, say, hey, hey, you know what's going on at the border? Does that not make you nervous? And partly it's a little sense of resignation because they've been living through a war for eight years. For years, yeah. Partly it's just, just a little natural skepticism, too, to say, listen, man, Putin's always messing with us, right? You know, we got we to gotta get on with our lives. It's interesting. I was saying to someone, it reminds me, I've spent a lot of time in the Middle East. It reminds me of a place like Beirut, for instance. Beirut is a place that has I was just been through that. wars. Right. Yeah, wars and, and other kinds of attacks for many years. And you go there, and, and even in the midst of some of those really dicey periods, you could go out and have a lovely dinner, you know, <laughs> surrounded yep. by people, and, you know, the beaches are crowded and, and so on. And so some of that is just a kind of natural toughness and uh, you built on experience, frankly, too much experience, right, of war in recent years. Right. Now I'm fascinated with what the what the process is like to to send a news crew or, crew uh, over to Ukraine to cover something like this. What what has that process been like? You were, you arrived there a couple of days ago. Yeah, the the concern when I arrived a few days ago uh, was that the airport would close, right? And by the way, KLM for instance, uh, over the weekend stopped flying in to Kiev, I believe another airline as well. And then the question was, do other international airlines cancel because of concern that a war was about to begin and that there might be threats, if not to the, the airport itself, to the airspace, right? Because remember MH17, right? You, you had a commercial right. airliner flying over Ukraine in the midst, not of a hot war, right? But something of a kind of slow burn war that this has been. And Russian missiles shot the thing down, you know, killed nearly 300 people yeah. um, thinking that it was a military aircraft. So understandable nervousness, right, about what all these guns and missiles and bombs and soldiers mean for safety. So the, one of the concerns was, okay, are the airports going to stay open? They did as it, as it happened, um, and the flight still went in. But looking for backup routes in, we were looking at driving in from Warsaw, for instance. Um, now, it may turn out that there is no invasion, or there's a small, smaller invasion, say, to the east of a smaller part of the country, um, but in each scenario, you want to be prepared, um, for the worst, right? And I've spent a lot of time going to war zones for years, as have a lot of my colleagues. So we, we know that, that the situation on the ground can change very quickly. And that when it, when it does, the risks are not theoretical, they're real, uh, and right. you have to be prepared for them. Yeah. I feel like it's it often feels like the U S and the international community is a little bit powerless to stop Putin. Uh, in doing what he wants to do, um, because he obviously doesn't play by by the rules of the rest of the international community. Uh, what are the the America's options right now, at least diplomatically, to try and invo- avoid a, a Russian invasion? Well, it's interesting. Vladimir Putin is a KG guy. He's a former KGB guy, and he has often played the West to his advantage. But I think we also need to be be aware that he's not perfect, and he makes mistakes. And he sometimes overplays his hand. You know, it's interesting. I interviewed the Estonian prime minister uh, yesterday, um, mm. and Kaya Kalas, and and I asked her. I said, "Do you?" And by the way, Estonia is, is on the front lines of this, and they've been they've had huge cyber attacks on them by Russia. Russia has threatened them. Russia, like Ukraine, does not view Estonia as properly independent. They view them as a former Soviet republic. They should be part, you know, of Mother Russia. That kind of thing. Um, and I said. Do you feel sometimes that that Putin is seen too much as twelve feet tall, right? You know that that he's kind of invincible, and she was she she said yes, and she had a great line. She said actually, Putin and I are exactly the same height, 
which was which was kind of funny. Uh, <laughs> kind of taking a, great a little jab there, but I do. I do think there's a tendency to imagine that he always has it right. Now, hmm. there is a school of thought that, that what, what, and by the way, this could change tomorrow or next week or in two months, but that the pushback that Russia has found from this buildup was at least more unified than some expected, and that perhaps there's some recalculation here. It could be as simple as a delay, wait a few days, a few weeks, see if the see if the West is as united as it is today in a couple weeks' time. It could also be that there was more pressure and pushback than expected. Uh, So the possibility of a recalculation, right? That um, I would think that, you know, in any of these instances, both on our side, if you want to call it that, or their side, or, or whoever the players are involved, that it's always imperfect people working with imperfect information, and not always making the right calls and sometimes making horrendous calls and sometimes making pretty damn good ones, you know, but very rarely is one person making all the right calls. And what's your best bet? I hate to ask you to get into the mind of, of Putin, but what's your best bet on what he wants out of all of this? He wants to weaken and disable and cripple Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, he would love to claim the whole damn thing back. Um, He's tried that before, before 2013-14, you know, the, the famous Maidan protests against what was then a pro-Russian Ukrainian government. He pretty much did have it again, not not formally as part of his country, but under the sway, um, kind of like Belarus is today. Uh, then he lost that, and he viewed that as a loss and claimed some back, you know, invaded, annexed Crimea and destabilized big parts of the East. He... he probably wants more of the country, right? And probably dreams about pulling it back, the whole thing back to his way, or at least arresting what has become this kind of drift of Ukraine towards the West in in terms of it it wanting to have association agreements, at least with NATO and other European organizations. It wants to have a functioning democracy, right? That kind of thing. And that is not good for him on a number of fronts. One, he doesn't control the place as much as as he would like. And two, um, a, part of his former remit, right, as he looks at the you know, former Soviet Union that, that has a functioning rules-based, you know, democratic, and I'm not saying this country is perfect, but that Russians do not have is a bad advertisement for him. And that's the way he looks at a lot of, pla- a lot of these places. It's the way he looks at the Baltic states, it's the way he looks at Moldova, you know, all these places that used to be under his sway. He's, he's trying to get them back. And whether that means getting them all back or a piece of them or at least destabilizing them, that's what he wants. We'll be back with more from Jim Shudo right after this. 911, what is your emergency? Frantic calls to 911. Crime scenes and lives violently ended. Police officers arrived to find that she had been stabbed well over 20 times. Secrets and lies and the search for suspects. Your, your wife, she's being arrested and charged with murder. Trials and verdicts. The defendant is guilty of first-degree murder. I'm Brian Ross. Join me for Killer Cases, a new podcast from Vault Studios and the Law and Crime Network. Now, I'm always curious, and I think you have a, a very keen perspective of this because you you served in the Obama administration. Um, you covered the Trump and the Biden presidencies. Um, it, do you think that there's a difference between how Putin behaves when an American president changes or are, do, you, do you see his actions as more baked in? 
It's a great question because when you look back at the last few presidents, right, the last four, so let's just go back, Bush, Obama, uh, Trump, and now Biden, the ones that were president during Putin's time, that Putin has taken something away during all those administrations, right? You know, he sliced off a piece of Georgia during the Bush administration. Mm -hmm. He sliced off a piece of Ukraine during the Obama administration. During the Trump administration, carried out some pretty devastating cyber attacks on the U.S., uh, solar winds, for instance, um, and uh, disrupted, at a minimum, further in eastern Ukraine, and, and now an attempt to, to drive further into Ukraine or the Biden administration. And, and it's interesting, part of this is that multiple administrations misread Russia. Each president comes in and says, you know what, I could do this better. You know, mm. I could I can build a relationship with Putin. He and I see eye to eye. You remember like George H. W. George W. Bush, right? I saw into right. his soul. Yep. Uh, Obama, they had the reset button. Hillary Clinton and Lavrov. Trump, of course, constantly advertised his his supposedly warm relationship with Putin. We could do business. Um, and Biden, you know, said America is back, right? Famously, when you know during his European tour and when he met Putin in Geneva. Um, but each of them then runs into Putin hasn't changed that much. Right? He's still <laughs> willing to break the rules. He's willing right. to poison a demo- democratic leader. He's willing to to invade countries or, or threaten to invade that kind of thing. But what I do think is changing over that time period is that a lot of folks in the West used to look at R- Russia and think, okay, here's a country that we could do business with um, that it will modernize, reform politically, economically over time. And I think that there, there is a bipartisan uh, realization, if you want to call it that, or, or meeting of minds that, no, it's just, we're going we're gonna to be competing. He plays mm-hmm. by different rules. We've got to play tough. It's, kinda, it's, not, it's, it's pretty similar to the way the U.S. views China now, too, that that's become a bipartisan thing. After years where folks said, hey, they're going to move in our direction over time. So I think that lesson is, is a sort of bipartisan lesson. Right. And, you know, you mentioned Bush there. One thing I'm always curious about when it comes to foreign conflict is how media coverage of these conflicts has changed since the Iraq war, um, when the press was seen as was accused of being sort of complicit in selling that war. And this goes yeah. back a little bit to what we were, we were discussing earlier. Do, do you think the press has become more skeptical of either official statements or background comments from the administration and, and intelligence agencies or... Like, do you see that as something that has changed since coverage of, of Iraq? Mm. It's a good question. Listen, um, there's always there's always a natural skepticism among the best journalists, right? Um, yep. Journalists don't always get it right, right? And the Iraq war is a, a good example, right? Where a lot of that, that intel- hey, again, there we are, intelligence, right? U.S. supplied intelligence turned out not to be either not to be right or was made more convincing than it actually was, right? Um, And that's a lesson. Now, folks don't always learn a lesson, right, (laughs) over time. There are a lot of folks around reporting today who weren't around then, and there are a lot of people with short memories. Um, Right. The sad fact, too, we in our country, you know, not across the board, but, you know, a lot of folks have driven deeper into the partisan silos, right, where, you know, the only information that comes through is one that is seen as helpful for one side and, and hurtful for the other, right? You know, so mm-hmm. you, you have to run it through those, through those filters, too. Um, 
but yes, I would say that there is there there is a bit more willingness to question and say, "Show me," right? Right. Yep. Show me, and uh, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. And, and that's not entirely new, right? I mean, look, go back to the Vietnam War, right? I mean, there there was a turning point in the Vietnam War when people just started not to believe, and rightfully so. The 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 descriptions of how that war was going, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not a straight line, I would say. It's not. It's not a straight line, but but I do think you know, the best journalists have always been skeptical, and and hopefully we're learning over time. Yeah, you know, one of the reasons I bring it up is I'm not sure you saw this, but Edward Snowden had a tweet a few days ago where he said, uh, "There's nothing more grotesque than a media pushing for war." And, you know, I would argue that the media isn't pushing for war so much as Russia is amassing 100,000 troops on Ukraine's border yeah. and the media is reporting on it. But his argument is that the media still uncritically repeats what they're being told by sources uh, in the government and the intel community. What do you make of that yeah. argument? Do you think it has any legs? It is, like many tweets, mm. uh, not based on fact. Right. right. So his assumption is because... Folks in the media are covering, as you say, a massive Russian military buildup around borders with tremendous and deadly capabilities. Because we're covering that, we are somehow rooting for it to be used. I know for a fact I'm not, and the people I'm working with don't, because I've seen wars in person, and it's bloody and deadly, and it's, you know, I have no desire to see that happen, but it's, it appears to be a major threat and it requires coverage. I also think, like many tweets, I don't believe Edward Snowden's watching my show, right? Because I ask questions of, of U.S. officials and NATO officials and Russian officials, by the way, when given the opportunity to press them uh, on why we should believe X or Y. Uh, you know, we, we, we raise and discuss both what we hear, what we see on the ground ourselves, and what genuine and, and reasonable questions we have about those things. So, um, you know, I just don't think he's watching, he's watching our shows because we, we, you know, as always, you're doing your best, but we definitely ask hard questions of folks when we're told things, um, like this. Um, and by the way, no, not rooting for war because I and my colleagues, uh, have seen it and it's not Mm -hmm. fun or enjoyable. It's real and it's bloody and it's deadly. And by the way, Edward Snowden is in Russia, given protection by Russia, uh, a country that has a long track record of starting wars, uh, invading countries. And by the way, journalists have a tendency to fall off balconies in in Russia. Uh, Mm. Opposition leaders and dissidents get poisoned both in Russia and outside its borders. So in that particular case, it's a remarkable perch to be in as you throw that criticism towards... uh, or his perception of how it's covering this particular buildup. Right. I do want to talk about your career a little bit, because as I mentioned earlier, alongside a career in news, you also worked for a U.S. administration. You were chief of staff and senior advisor to Gary Locke, who was the U.S. ambassador to China. How did you get into the news business? And could you take us through the trajectory of your career and how it bounced from news to politics? For sure. I um, so when I got out of college, I didn't know what I wanted to do. <laughs> like, a, like maybe a lot of a lot of folks. <laughs> I didn't know what I, I did know that I wanted to go overseas. 
I just had this desire to go overseas and explore. Um, and like a lot of uh, college grads who don't know exactly what they want to do, uh, I, I went for a fellowship <laughs> it, because it got me overseas. I did a Fulbright fellowship, got me to Hong Kong, um, and it paid for it. Um, and I'd studied China uh, in college, so I already had an interest in that region, and I wanted to get closer to it. And when I finished that, I wanted to stay and explore the region and travel. And, and what better way to do it, I always thought, than be paid to do it as a journalist, right? I, I've always thought of, of, of journalism to some degree for me selfishly as a, as a paid traveling education around the world. So I stayed in Hong Kong for a good five years and traveling around the re region as a reporter, um, then decided to uh, move to a U.S. outlet back in the States. This was ABC News. They hired me and sent me back to the States. But because I think somewhere in my DNA is this explorer's uh, desire, after a couple of years in the U.S. for ABC, I started uh, hankering again for a foreign assignment and looked at a couple of things. I was talking about going to Mexico City. Then 9-11 happened. And, of course, I wanted to be in the Middle East. Um, so went there for months and months and eventually became based in London, but still covering the world from there. But given it was post 9-11, uh, post Afghanistan invasion and Iraq invasion, uh, I was there for all those things. Of course, I spent a bulk of my time in the Middle East. Um, about 10 years, good 10 years of that. Um, and, and really enjoyed it. I mean, I, I loved the life of a foreign correspondent. Um, but then figured, hey, maybe it's time to go back to the U.S. Maybe a lot of folks, you know, to have a part of your career covering U.S. politics makes sense. So ABC, I asked, and they sent me back to Washington. But again, because somewhere in my DA, DNA is <laughs> a sort of unquenchable, unquenchable um, desire to travel and cover the world, I, I started thinking about going overseas again. Now, the, the, the idea of leaving news for a period of time to go work as chief of staff to the U.S. ambassador to China was not, was not planned. I, I, I met the ingoing ambassador, Gary Locke, at, at an event, and we just got to talking about China, which I'd covered for years and studied and traveled to for years. And, and he asked me kind of out of the blue if, if, I would, if I'd be willing to, to go there. And it just seemed like a, such a unique opportunity to, one, go to China at an interesting time. This is 2011. Uh, and two, be on the inside, right? Be on the inside of um, the U.S. State Department as it's responding to these many crises, frankly, within within the relationship, and see what I would learn from it. And uh, and I learned a lot. I learned a, I learned a lot. And um, and then, but again, uh, after a couple of years of that, I still had this desire to travel the world as a reporter specifically, um, that really journalism was in my veins. Um, so decided to go back to news, join CNN, and now that's been almost nine years. So <laughs> it's a, it, it adds up to a lot of years at the end of the day. Uh, right. But I still don't, when, when I come to a place like Kiev, you know, and this is, Scott, it's like after 25 years, really, of reporting and, and principally as a foreign correspondent, I still, I was saying to my producer the other day, I was like, this is the, my favorite part of the job, mm. coming to another country in the midst of breaking news uh, soaking it up, trying your best to stay ahead of the news. I, I will never, I think I'm going to do that until uh, they either wheel me out of the studio <laughs> or, or I eventually decide to take a break from it all. Yeah. Uh, Jim, thanks so much for coming on the show and, and thank you for all the reporting you're doing. 
No problem. I, I enjoy it. Uh, it's, uh, it's a ball. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And check out coverage of my conversation with Jim Shudo on Mediaite.com.